In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... I like beer. I don't know if you do. Okay. Do you like beer, Senator? Or not. Uh, my party is going bat crazy. Yeah! You're the pop- Alternative facts. Oh, goodness. The Betches Sup Podcast. America! Hello, and welcome to the Sup Daily Podcast. I'm Caitlin Bird, and today I'm here with Blair Imani, historian, activist, and advocate. She focuses on women and girls global blackness, and the LGBTQ plus community. She's also the author of two books, including Making Our Way Home, The Great Migration, and The Black American Dream, released earlier this year, and is the co-host of the America Did What podcast. Thank you so much for being with us, Blair. Thank you for having me. How how are you doing? That's like a... How am I doing? That is a taboo question. You know, you're not supposed to ask people that anymore, according to some article I saw. But honestly, I feel pretty good. I feel like um, a little bewildered that suddenly everyone wants to listen to what I have to say as a historian and advocate. Like, you know, it's one of those things I think that we're experiencing as black people, period, where it's like, oh, y'all were not paying attention so deeply before. What the heck? (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah yeah absolutely it's like all of a sudden you're like wait i've got like five pitches in my my inbox now at all times that's crazy no one no one was asking me for anything before um or like for but- me materially i was on unemployment until amy cooper situation went down and everyone realized oh shit racism is a problem so i feel very blessed not complaining about that you know love money in the bank but at the same time, like, at what cost? Exactly. There's a lot of trauma that comes along with processing this kind of environment and then kind of having, like, turn out material to give to people. Um, and yet you, you, as a historian, so much of, of our history is, is really around that kind of energy, um, these kind of untold stories uh, that illuminate things considering, you know, your, your background, the history that you know, what, what do you make of this moment in the context of that understanding? Oh, so I think that like, it, okay, <sighs> where to start? Well, this moment is certainly exciting, right? Like I'm usually like the bearer of bad news. I called myself the blarer of bad news because I love a pun. Um, but I'm usually a pessimist when it comes to things like even Um, when my parents were saying, like, I think that George Floyd is really going to change things. Um, I was like, well, you know, I'm sure that you all had said that about Rodney King and just like, you know, name after name after name. Um, And Rodney King is somebody who survived the brutality. And so initially, I was really like, you know, trying to put the brakes on just the not put the brakes on optimism, because I'm an asshole. But just because I'm like, concerned that we're going to get our hopes up again. And it's going to be dash, you know, take it now, you know, 
uh, a, a week after some of the protests have died down or who have, have transformed into kind of a different method. And I really feel like this is different, but, you know, don't even take it from me. Like, you know, sister Angela Davis, she's optimistic about this current moment. And that's honestly all I need to know is that our elders are really, you know, feeling different because I'm 26 years old. I've only lived like a finite amount of time. You know, sister Angela Davis has seen, you know, Helen back. And if she feels optimistic, then I think we all deserve permission to be optimistic. That is something really impressive out of, out of history. Um, and, and how, how blackness has kind of had our, our story and our arc move through, um, this American moment. Um, and that actually kind of brings me to this, the space is that you were on the ground for Alton Sterling yes. in 2016. And, uh, that was, that you, that was one of the major organizing moments of, of your, your experience. Um, I know you say you retired from organizing. Extremely retired. <laughs> Extremely retired. What do you What do you think that like organizing on the ground right now? Like, what do you think is like sustaining them? What can we do to sustain them? And lastly, what do you make of like this process of, of organizing these kinds of protests from your perspective from that history? So I think right now what we're seeing is just a multinational movement. Um, toward freedom and the people who are doing it you have a mix of folks who are veterans and folks who are young people kind of coming together using their various expertise Um, and now like social media like I remember like when Alton Sterling you know was murdered I was also honestly kind of retired from an organizing standpoint like I had gone to my big girl job you know I had my job at Planned Parenthood Federation of America my first month there I, you know, heard the news and I was actually invited by the student organizers there, such as Myra Richardson, to come down and support. And so I was like supporting in a very auxiliary capacity. My partner came down and was going to be a legal observer because there's multiple ways to, you know, fight and you have to pick your expertise. Um, And then I was going to help them with the press wrangling. Then it completely escalated once the cops showed up. And now everyone understands this. That's like the biggest thing out of this current moment is that people are like, oh, well, when the cops show up for like a war, then they're going to escalate stuff. But this was a conversation that like since before then, you know, Ferguson, Baltimore, people like refuse to understand. So that's the one side. Um, then things escalated. So I won't take credit as like an organizer in that regard. Going to the current moment again, when the protests were happening, we didn't really establish bail funds ahead of time because we were kind of, I think, all under the illusion that we could get through this peacefully. We could negotiate with the police. Things could change. And, you know, that just wasn't the case at all. And so I think with this time, this took place, um, there's like a big understanding across in, in multinational like organizing groups that, hey, um, let's rely on infrastructure we already have. Let's not allow people to just like swoop in and take thunder, especially one, because it's super unsafe because of coronavirus. So the thing that is really happening is that people who are local, who are directly affected, are leading the conversation. And that doesn't usually happen because um, people 
like to clout chase or people like to dominate moments. Um, of course, that's still happening to some extent. You can't completely root it out. But that's really what's different is that it's local, that the people uh, who are leading the movement, um, who are leading the media narrative as well, are dealing with these police departments day to day. So they know the bullshit. They know what's happening. Um, and they're not surprised by it like somebody who's an outsider is. So they're ready to meet the moment, address it head on. Um, and like in the case with Minneapolis, there's a lot of different org organizations like um, Black Visions MN um, that were just ready to go because they already had this infrastructure. So it's kind of a maturation of the movement in the same way that like people ask historically they're like well what did the black panther party even want and it's like the black panther party had 10 very clear demands what do you mean what do they want you know and so in this way um there are demands of the police department you know defund the police department and um there's a great article um in the new york times by mariam kaba that was like yes when we say this about the police we mean it. And um, like you have people like my parents who, um, well, not my parents specifically, but their friends who might have supported these terrible crime bills, even as black people who are now telling me why we need to defund the police. So there's progress. Yeah, I, I was actually going to, it's, it's incredible to see how this has kind of progressed through from where we were in 2014. Um, uh, even earlier than that, Trayvon Martin happened. That kind of opened the door. Michael Brown, then um, Freddie Gray in Baltimore. And so we've had these ongoing discussions. Do you feel that we have finally illuminated to some degree more of this Black experience in the country and that it has, it's, it's transformed a little bit? That we've, we've kind of had a, we're having a different discussion than we normally have. We're definitely having a different discussion because, for example, last night I was sitting at the kitchen table and they had Mark Brown on the news interviewing um, a woman from Black Lives Matter LA about the people's budget after giving a shit ton of airtime to the police. That's just something we don't see, you know? Um, yeah. Or, like, when the protests are happening, people who are being, like, you know, first of all, the whole, like, looting and rioting conversation as a delegitimization to the movement, that's a BS conversation to begin with. But on the news, you know, in their, you know, infinite baby steps, baby steppedness, um, they were saying, well, there are a valid protest message here, and they're looters who are different, blah, blah. but, like, even the fact that they were making a distinction between people, that was kind of like, oh, shit, that's different. Um, it doesn't mean that they're done or that they're finished learning, but it was just wild to see that, like, you know, mainstream media was acknowledging the fact that these peaceful protests were going on, happening um of course they want to put a special bearing and emphasis on peaceful because how dare we be disruptive in a world that wants to kill us um but the thing was they did acknowledge that the police were being brutal were being violent and i think that has to do also because a lot of police departments were going after the press so then the press class felt a sense of solidarity with the movement um so it, it's not a question of like was you know the George Floyd, you know, videotape the perfect evidence. That's not a question of that. It's a confluence of the fact that we're in a pandemic where a lot of people have no choice but to pay attention to the current moment because they have shit else to do, you know? And it sucks because it really underlines the fact that in the United States and globally, 
blackness is oppressed to the point where we are such an afterthought that people have to be mass unemployed, you know, mass bored to give a crap. But, you know, there's like Walter Scott where there was video of a police officer chasing him down, shooting him, and then proceeding to say he had a gun and like plant a gun on him. And that was all captured. And I remember seeing that and like just, you know, fully being sick you know, vomiting, because I was just like, it, it was just so jarring. Humans are not supposed to see violence like that and be cool with it. Um, but a lot of folks are. And so I never watched the videotape of George Floyd, and I can still give a shit. You know, I, I really reject the idea that people have to have this perfect instance of evidence to care. But we really have to consider the current economic moment, health moment. Um, and just the fact that people have time in a way that they haven't before. Um, and, you know, let's try to fuel that into creating a better future for everyone. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. There has been some tension, even within, you mentioned like your, your um, parents' generation, um, their friends, also consequently my parents' generation, parents are tail end boomers, early Gen X, and um, they 
they, my, my dad was working on police, uh, precinct council meetings. He was doing that. He was, a community leader. He was trying to do community policing. This was back in the nineties and he was trying. I don't know if he was necessarily supportive of the crime bill, but he wasn't entirely against it either. Understanding that there was more policing that was desired in communities even now, I think there's still a tremendous tension between, uh, you know, defund the police and abolish the police, uh, reform and defund, even along that spectrum. You know, what, what is kind of your, your vision on, on how we're going to consolidate and build solidarity um, among the, the community, but also just the broader American community? You know, not just black people, but white people too, because there needs to be a, a certain level of buy-in, right, in order to get get it forward. Do you have any any thoughts around like what these tensions, um, what's going to resolve them? Um, quite frankly, I have no idea. But the good thing is, I'm not one of the key voices working on it. You know, like I think that the key organizers of like this abolition movement, people like Mariam Kaba, people like Charlene Carruthers. Um, folks who are in the Black Black Youth Project, folks who are central in BLM, um, the BLMLA with the People's Budget, you know, these folks do know what's going to turn the tides and they have a very strong repertoire of what's next. And so that's the thing. Like when I say I'm a retired organizer, it's not because I don't contribute. It's just that like I have my niche that I'm very good at. And so in my niche, um, as a historian, really making it clear to people but there has been, as Angela Davis said, this continuing link of oppression in terms of um, policing in the United States and how policing originated from slave patrols. And so how can we root out bias in an organization that was literally created to catch and kill us? You know, that's like, it, it just doesn't make sense materially. So I always try to bring it to the historical standpoint to pe for people to understand what were the origins of the current policing that we have? What were the origins of the war on drugs? How should we be talking about these things? Um, but, you know, I'm really like, it really is, I think, um, important for me to then articulate that, no, I don't have the answers for this current moment, not my expertise, but there are amazing experts who are doing this work, who people are listening to, because the fact that there even is the conversation between abolish and defund, like, which sometimes comes to the same end sometimes it's like a completely different conversation there are people who want to completely get rid of the police which is valid then you have people who want to defund the police have some type of mechanism that looks completely different from what we current know currently understand as police and then have somebody that you know, a new organization that you would call if you didn't have a home robbery um but a different organization that you would call if you had a mental health issue you wouldn't have the police come and then draw guns on somebody who's having a, a you know a bipolar episode you would have you know somebody who can de-escalate from that so um there is multiple conversations happening but the fact that we are having this nuance of a conversation about policing is huge and it doesn't mean that we're done but i think it's something that we can really get excited about because people like your dad who were doing community policing like my father, um, he has facilities for people who are um, mentally ill or who have developmental disabilities. And he would be trying to train the police on de-escalation techniques. But at a certain point, the police union said, we no longer have to do this because they don't have to care about the community. So I think a lot of folks have, are able to string together 
their experiences with bad policing to say, you know what, the whole barrel is rotten, forget a few bad apples, the mold has spread, let's start over. Um, And that's really, I think, where we are as a country, and it's super exciting. It is extremely exciting, Um, and it is is very interesting uh, when you talk about the the history, the history of, of blackness and policing, the history of these two groups kind of never really being, um, really being, always being in opposition with each other. Um, and I was wondering about another community that has largely lived in opposition to the police state that is part of the black community and has had some issues kind of feeling as integrated in, you know, it's Pride Month, um, and our uh, queerness has very long been coded white, has very long been coded cis. I was wondering if you had thoughts, considering your, your background in advocacy, on how we can kind of center in this month of, of turmoil and, and everything to bring pride and Black Lives Matter into the same space. How do we, how do we consolidate that? How do we talk about it? This is one of my favorite questions because it is a history lesson that will solve it. Um, so I get really excited about history and I'm just so geeked that people care now. Like with the podcast that we have coming up, we were like so worried. How are we going to make this punchy enough that people want to listen to a history podcast? And now we have like an audience out of thin air. So anyway, I'm geeked about that. Anyway, so the way that people integrate in their own understandings of LGBTQ communities, you know, black civil rights movement, black power movement, etc., is looking back at the history. The fact is that the tactics used during the Stonewall uprising were very much in line and a part of the conversation when you look at the black power movement, okay? You can't understand the Black Panthers without, um, you know, looking at the different movements that it, ex- that it inspired um, and that it was a part of, like the Young Lords, um, like the LGBTQ liberation movement, that whole conversation of shifting from, um, you know, the homophile movement, that's what it used to be called. Um, So homophile just meaning like, you know, we just like the same thing. We just like the same gender, you know, moving to like gay liberation, lesbian liberation, queer liberation. Um, That was also happening at the same time within the Black Power movement. And so even though you had Black trans women leading the riots and the uprising at Stonewall, for some reason, people have this cognitive dissonance to understand, okay, well, if a black woman was leading it, then yes, it's a black movement too, you know? And so what results is that you have people who are super, you know, woke up to the point on like issues of like black power and like Afro affirmation, etc. But then it comes to LGBTQ issues and there's like this cognitive dissonance of like, oh, well, that's just another thing that's outside of our community. And so I'm doing this um, 10-week anti-racism training uh, as part of my offerings through my patrons on Patreon. And part of that includes talking about the holistic view of anti-racism, which means understanding the origins of gender diversity and queerness within, you know, Afro communities and within the diaspora, because there's been articles coming out um, from researchers who are finally actually invested in the communities they're researching that show that communities uh, that had queerness, that had gender diversity, those were erased in the historical record. Now it makes sense, right? Like why would they include anything other than like the absolute worst that would be shown as evidence in big scare quotes that we deserve to be 
um, you know, we deserve to be oppressed and uh, forced into, you know, horrific conditions. So we've been using the master's toolbook to understand ourselves as a people. And that toolbook also includes, in addition to white supremacy, colorism, transphobia, homophobia, you know, sexism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it's not to say that systems of oppression don't exist within oppressed people's right, but it's also to understand that this also came from us and that we are each other. You know what I mean? Like, because um, it frustrates me when people say to LGBTQ folks that, yo, you're black first and then you're queer. No, I'm all of me all the time. Last night I got into an argument with somebody and um, it was about, you know, sexuality specifically. The person was white and they were like, well, why are you bringing up race? And I was like, I don't get to decide when to bring up race because you get to be racist to me and homophobic all the time because I'm all of the things, you know? So like, I think yeah. that it's one of those that people really need to hold in tandem. So the original pride the uprising at Stonewall was against respectability, was literally against police violence. And the police went and likely lit the Stonewall in on fire because why would any gay patron do that to the one place they had to congregate and just make sense narratively or like psychologically. Um, and so as this happened, uh, then it was like a push against police and things really changed, you know, when it moved from this like kind of platitudes of we're just like you except gay to, you know, screw the police, all cops are bastards, let's light this on fire. Then things really started to change as far as the America, the American Psychological Association uh, no longer saying that homosexuality, which is already an archaic term, is no longer a mental illness. Things that like just materially changed because of this mass uprising that was happening. So um, that was just huge, you know, because suddenly people were listening and it's because they couldn't not listen. And the thing that's so ironic to me about all this is, you know, as the uprisings in the United States just now were kicking off, Tesla sent somebody to them, you know, sent somebody out into outer space. But in 1969, when this was happening during Stonewall, the United States was similarly saying, we're sending a man to the moon and we're doing the hard things and we're, you know, at the precipice of progress. And it really takes, you know, Gil Scott Heron, who wrote a song called Whitey on the Moon, to really capture the fact that, well, while you white people get to go to the moon, get to gallivant out in space, we still have to deal with the worst uh, toilet bowl of situations here in, you know, real life. Um, and so there's this conversation I saw, and I'm, I'm just rambling at this point, but maybe you don't want to include it. Maybe you do. Um, but uh, like seeing folks like my friends, my friend Bobak, who lives, uh, my friend Bobak, who works at JPL, and how he was really struggling with like, you know, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, unhearing to this current moment, but I'm super excited about space because that's my job. And so like, it was interesting to see people say like no space brings me hope but like for me as a black woman who is afraid of even having a child because of the rates of maternal mortality I can't even think about outer space because I'm trying to think about how the people who I bring into this world will even be able to live much less get a job in in space and science and then be able to do anything oftentimes you know we'll we'll be online we'll be in our in spaces trying to to have discussions trying to push the discourse and history often comes up as a 
very clean, you know, like the amount of MLK quotes I've seen. Oh my God. Memorial Day is like painful. And it, the most every, lukewarm ones. Feeling, like you're getting punched in the face. And you're like, why is this happening to me? <laughs> so if you would like, if you wanted to like kind of clarify the, how messy history is, and like the they're you know we're like we're living through history right now like this is is history it's someone else's we're we're the prelude to someone else's story uh even though we don't know it yet um what what kind of perspective you know having studied all of the messy little details does that give you for for our moment and like how we should be taking advantage of it and also how to tell people stop using a milk like K-coats. If, if you feel comfortable doing that, feel free. Oh, for sure. Like, I'm so excited by this question. I got up, moved my laptop so I could grab my book, Making Our Way Home, uh, and read from it a little bit. But as far as messy details, that makes me think of the fight between Marcus Garvey and W.B. Du Bois. They did not like each other. Like, the girls were fighting. You know, I didn't include it in my book because I didn't want the first intro people had to Marcus Garvey uh, or W.B. Du Bois to be, like, the horrible... Um, vitriolic colorism that they were spewing um, and I didn't yeah. want folks to like I mean like W.B. Du Bois was kind of up his own butt as a light-skinned man you know like people need to know that intense. like he evolved after that but the fact is he published it and a lot of people still cling to it and so for folks who don't know the talented tenth was this very black like well ugh, we shouldn't say black like it was very classist uh, exceptionalist idea that if Black folks are just super excellent and super, you know, you know, exceptional. It's actually a very American idea with the, all the exceptionalism tied into it. Then we can get free and we can't focus on the lowest common denominator of blackness. The thing is, as we know from, you know, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, he is a doctored, you know, black man who is very respectable. He's even fair-skinned. He got the police called on him while he was going to his apartment at Harvard, you know, so the talented tenth throw it out anyway. WB Du Bois eventually threw it out, but um, you know that's messy details. You know, like not everybody got along in history. Some people were like, "You're full of shit." I don't agree, and other people were like, "No, you're full of shit." Like I really go after Booker T. Washington in my book. I'll read you the introduction, the the definition I have of him, just to keep it brief. Um, but the whole respectability thing and that negotiation. Um, and I'll read the definition of respectability. Respectability refers to a practice of policing within marginalized communities where leaders urge community adherence to the social values of the dominant group, such as proper dress, and proper is in big scare quotes, proper dress, conduct, and speech with the goal of winning favor from the dominant group. Um, and that's just, it dresses it down completely. And then I'm trying to find Booker T. Washington who I was told was cool growing up. And then oh, man. my dad, I got home and my dad was like, oh, absolutely not. No, he sucked. <laughs> I remember reading that, uh, that poem, the, the Booker T. Washington W.E.B. Du Bois one, when I was, uh, when I was going, it was like 12 years old. And they were like talking about these dueling ideologies and then I was like, but what if they're both wrong? You know, like, because as a twin, if, they're, yeah. they're arguing for, for getting the tiniest slice of this bigger pie. So I think that's so interesting um, uh, about that whole space, you know, and how messy it was. And, and Booker, especially, 
Um, yeah. So his definition I have as, so Booker T. Washington, while his contributions to education and business were robust, Washington struggled to relate and appeal to the wider black community. He believed that if black Americans remained patient and deferential toward the racist status quo, white society would eventually grant them respect and equal standing, an ideology often called respectability. His stances were embraced far more by white Americans than by those in his own community. A drag, you know? And so why it's important to really like historically yep. context, put those things in historical context is that um, we love Booker T. Washington in American history class. Why? Because he fit in with the status quo. He was literally telling black people to just chill out you know, let racism happen, let the waves wash over you, and one day we will rise anew as a beautiful mermaid of justice. Like, come on, Booker T. Like, that wasn't an exact quote, but I feel like that was the BS he was spinning. And it really was because he had this privilege as a light-skinned Black man. His experience was that if he, you know, I don't have my hijab on, which is why I don't have my camera on, but I'm getting really animated. (laughs) So anyway, um, so like while he was like he had something called the national negro business league that is now the national business league because it had so much capitalist investment that it was one of the only organizations in the united states to be created specifically for black people and now be something that still exists and is you know race neutral or white and so we have to look at who we're upholding now as far as martin luther king goes he had a really great speech that i also cite in my book and i just want to read the last stanza of it if i may and it's the speech he gave called beyond vietnam and if you need to understand what martin luther king was on this is a speech he gave you know a, a year to the day prior to his death or his murder you know we really have to name that he was murdered because when people say prior to his death then it's like there's this excellent tiktoker teacher who says you know martin luther king was like hey, can y'all stop being racist? And the white people were like, oh, okay. And then the white, and then Martin Luther King goes, thanks. I'm going to die now for no specific reason. But no, that's yeah, not how somehow. it played out. Like he just like, yeah. disappeared from the timeline. <laughs> no. He just Thanos himself because, you know, that, and that really leads to the idea that he was this <laughs> martyr, you know, where he was like, well, it's like Mary Poppins. She disappears when you need her, when, when you stop needing her. Martin Luther King was like, well, as the black Mary Poppins, I'm going to disappear, which is super disrespectful to MLK. But that's how white po- folks treat him. That's really yeah. what's disrespectful. Um, okay, so as I locate it, I was really intentional in my book about making sure that I depict Malcolm X, El-Hajj Malik, El-Shabazz with Dr. King, where there's a picture of them shaking hands and smiling together to really start to eat away at these narratives that make it seem like we can't have multiple ways of fighting white supremacy or that um, even those who are the most palatable to white supremacy are not subject to being extinguished by it. Um, Where the hell is this? Speech. I would okay. even go so far as to say that there's no tension between the two different routes, the routes of fighting white supremacy, that these all rely on each other to exist. You know, Absolutely. without the threat of violence, do we have the peaceful protests mean as much if there's no threat of anger, of retaliation, of violence? Yeah, honestly, like in my small little racist town that I live in and I grew up in, my grandma cleaned houses here. And 
she got escorted off the premises at 5 p.m. every day because it was what's called a sundown town where it could be racially integrated to the extent that was necessary during the day. And that was for schools and stuff as well. But at 5 p.m., if you were of color or black, you had to be off the premises or you could go to jail or worse. You know, it would kind of be like, well, if vigilante violence happened to you, it was just a concerned community. And so the fact that in this town that is so deeply racist, you know, that there was a march on the main street in the town on the busiest area and the police were happy to oblige. Like they were like reaching out to the students saying, Hey, can we help you voice your concerns? Cause they knew the alternative was that children are going to go buck wild because they're upset with the current state. So speaking of Martin Luther King quotes, I think that if folks are going to quote something, it should be from the last speech that he gave, uh, not the last speech he ever gave, but a speech that he gave right at the end of his life, literally a year before he was assassinated. Um, and it's called Beyond Vietnam. And it really starts to capture him realizing uh, or vocalizing more, because it wasn't a new realization, that a movement for Black liberation has to include multi, uh, you know, a multitude. It has to be nonviolent, but how could it be nonviolent when the you know, the state, the United States is waging war against an innocent and unarmed people. Okay. <clears throat> a true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of people normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Do you want to know something really wild? What? The first time I heard that speech was in a sampled uh, album from Linkin Park. Wow. Right? What the heck? But, That's allyship right there. I know. But the last um, message that he had, let me fact check myself. I'm pretty sure that was from the uh, Jornada Del Mundo album. Um, Wisdom, justice, and love. Yep, it's a song by Linkin Park where they quote that. Um, but the wild thing is that last stanza a nation that continues to spend more money on programs, you know, of military events than on programs of social uplift. That is the talking point that the people who are speaking about abolition and defunding the police are using. The fact that the LAPD at some point had to return missile launchers. What? The fact that we have um, wow. more money for policing, that children uh, are more likely to interact with a police officer than a teacher on a day-to-day -day basis because of how this has gotten out of control um, and was never meant to be for the people in the first place. Martin Luther King is speaking directly to that. The conversation about why do we need tanks in a small town police force? Why do they need a helicopter um, when they don't have anybody to be investigating cases of sexual assault and run test kits? You know, so that's the Martin Luther King um, that was, you know, Martin Luther King was not so palatable to white society that everyone loved him. His contemporaries didn't like him. My grandma, who's 92, takes issue with some of the ways that he was disrupting the white status quo. And she's a black woman, you know? So when we think about our current organizers, put that in that context, you know, and, and really understand that people who are shaking the table contemporarily 
they're going to be hit with a lot of flack because they're trying to show people a light that they are not ready to see yet. And so that's really how we have to look at Martin Luther King and other historical figures. Blair, thank you so much. That has been incredible. I am, I, I feel like we've learned so much in this, this like little, like half hour, 40 minutes. And thank you so much for your time especially. And thank you so much for your interest. You know, like I cannot overstate how exciting it is to be this bookworm history nerd who's like, you know, getting the, you know, I'm not, I don't want to say the black lung because I'm trying to root out black, like anti-black language in my own language. So instead of the black lung, I'm going to say uh, emphysema because that's the disease. <laughs> I'm like catching emphysema in the archives and like really just burying my head into our historical research. And so being able to surface it on like mainstream entertainment, exciting platforms is such a gift for me. And so I really appreciate you for making this space and to your listeners for what, being willing to engage because I truly believe that education is the key to moving forward as a people. And so I'm happy to be able to provide it. Thank you again so much, Blair Armani. We got just learned a lot today. Until the return of democracy, I'm Caitlin Bird, and this has been the Daily Sup Podcast. The Betcha Sup Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman. Our podcast managers are Mike Coscarelli and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. The Sup is created by Sammy Fishbein. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to SUP at Betches.com. Betches.